Welcome back, everyone. I hope you're enjoying the conference so far. We are now on to our luncheon keynote, uh, the subject of which will be 10 stablecoin predictions and their monetary policy implications. And for that, I am delighted to introduce Caitlin Long. Caitlin is the founder and CEO of Avanti Financial Group. She is a 22-year Wall Street veteran who has been active in Bitcoin since 2012 and whose passion is for fair and a stable financial system. She worked on Wall Street for many, many years and saw a lot of inaccuracies in Wall Street's ledger systems, which I think is what really uh, gave her the passion and the impetus to become involved with the crypto industry. And not only has she become involved, but she's become a leader within the sector. In her native state of Wyoming, she is one of the best known advocates for this technology and has been instrumental in changing the regulatory environment to make it more welcoming to this new sector. Um, and we will be delighted to hear from her because she really is shaping the regulatory environment for digital currencies in America, starting at the state level. So um, with that, I will let Caitlin speak. But before that, let me just remind you that you should tweet using the hashtag CatoMonCon with any questions and comments you have. And you can also add your questions on the event website. So with that, Caitlin, thank you very much for joining us. And uh, the floor is yours. Thank you, Diego. And welcome to the audience. I would like to thank the Cato Institute for your kind invitation to address you today. And uh, also make clear that my remarks are mine alone and do not represent necessarily the views of Avanti Financial Group or any other group with which I'm affiliated. Dr. Dorn booked me for this way back on February 11th when the world was a very different place. COVID was already ravaging the world, of course, but back then, most hadn't predicted the regime shifting impact it would have on physical cash and the face-to-face -face processes involved in banking. End-to-end -end digital ways of transacting have suddenly replaced long entrenched analog ways of doing things. And one place where that regime shift had a massive impact relative to its pre-COVID status is the US dollar stablecoin market. Stable coins are financial obligations issued on a blockchain. They are generally fully collateralized with either fiat currency deposits at a bank or with short-term government bonds held at a custodian. They are issued only by non-banks, although FINMA in Switzerland does allow a handful of Swiss banks to issue Swiss franc denominated stable coins. Usually stable coins do not pay interest and they are designed to trade at par with the relevant fiat currency. Because they are issued on a blockchain, they usually settle in minutes with irreversibility and critically, they are programmable, which means users can build their own software applications to interact with them to meet their own needs. The value of US dollar stablecoins outstanding on the day Dr. Dorn contacted me about this nine months ago was $5.6 billion. Today it's 22.1 billion. How prescient of Cato. But the real story isn't that. The real story is that annualized stablecoin trading volume is $16 trillion by one measure, which is huge compared to US B2B payment volume of 25 trillion. So how does 16 trillion of trading volume happen on the base of only 22 billion of something outstanding? The answer is of course, velocity. One stable coin is turning over at a reported rate of 914 times per year right now. That's two and a half times per day, including holidays and weekends. 
Another is at 158 times and another is at 70 times. So these are not anomalies. By looking at publicly available blockchain data, it's easy to confirm that the average velocity of US dollar stable coins right now is 109 times. Again, this is verified data. These are eye-popping velocities relative to the velocity of traditional forms of the US dollar. Something really interesting is happening here. But what does it mean for monetary policy? Remember, in the US, stablecoin issuers are in all cases non-banks. But stablecoins do impact the traditional financial system in two ways. First, they are an important new source of demand for T-bills and other level one high quality liquid assets. The very same scarce HQLA that traditional banks need for meeting their capital and liquidity coverage ratio requirements and which are so critical to monetary policy transmission channels such as the repo and other pledged collateral markets. Second, Stablecoins can touch banks, traditional banks directly, as banks may hold the cash collateral backing the stablecoin obligations of non-bank issuers. Indeed, the OCC in September explicitly acknowledged that US national banks may do this. With that as background, here are my 10 stablecoin predictions and their monetary policy implications. Number one, US dollar stablecoins outstanding will quadruple again to more than $100 billion by year end 2021. A major payments company is projecting potentially even faster growth. Number two, US dollar stablecoin velocity will continue at shock and awe levels relative to the velocity of traditional US dollar instruments. Again, high velocity is the real story about stablecoins. What is causing it and is it sustainable? The key characteristics of stablecoins, fast settlement, settlement finality, traceability on a blockchain, public open source protocols, and probably most importantly, programmability. In other words, faster, better, cheaper technology. These are all desirable characteristics to many users, ranging from digital asset traders to legitimate everyday businesses. Among the legitimate businesses that are using stablecoins, according to the CEO of one stablecoin issuer, are, quote, e-commerce marketplaces, advertising networks, luxury goods producers, recruiting platforms, digital content markets, peer-to-peer -peer lending platforms, payment companies, software firms, professional services firms, rewards businesses, mobile banking providers, and other internet companies. <laughs> it's worth stepping back though to discuss the origin of stable coins. How did this all happen? They were invented to solve real problems. Trades in digital assets settle in minutes and with finality i.e. once a Bitcoin is sent, it's gone and it cannot be reversed. But US dollar payment systems, of course, don't work that way. For example, ACH payments can take days to settle and can be clawed back by the sender. This is a real risk issue for intermediaries in digital assets, and here's why. If, for example, a customer purchases Bitcoin with an ACH transfer, takes delivery of the Bitcoin and then claws back the ACH transfer, the intermediary is out both sides of the trade. That's a huge risk. If the US dollar leg is in the form of a stable coin though, the risk is minimal or potentially even zero. The problem for institutional digital asset traders who typically don't pay with ACH is slightly different, but it's still there. They can't settle both the digital asset and US dollar legs of their trades simultaneously 24-7, 365 with finality. 
This means counterparty risk abounds because somebody, one side is carrying the unsettled trade while waiting for the dollar leg to, to post with its finality. And FX traders may recognize this as Herstadt risk. So stable coins go a long way to solving very fundamental risk issues in digital assets. And therefore it's no surprise that the, US, that the digital asset industry invented a whole new way to settle the US dollar legs of their trades. In sum, high stablecoin velocity is no accident because stablecoins really are faster, cheaper, better, auditable, and programmable. Indeed, Fed's notes, a Fed notes piece written in August by Wang and Manif explored the concept of programmability in money, which enables the automated execution of operations using code. Users of US dollars are voting with their feet, flocking to programmable versions for these very fundamental reasons. Number three, stablecoins will be an important new tool for monetary policymakers. Stablecoins have high natural velocity, and this means they create liquidity without using leverage. Monetary policy has traditionally relied on forms of leverage in order to create liquidity, such as traditional money multipliers or collateral reuse in the traditional and so-called shadow banking systems, respectively. But stablecoins don't need leverage to create liquidity. The technology on its own generates the liquidity without the need for leverage. Let's unpack this concept. Liquidity that greases the wheels of commerce must by definition flow through the financial system. And it can come from three places, from expanding central bank balance sheets, from expanding private financial institutions balance sheets, or from the higher natural velocity of the existing balance sheets of both official and private sector institutions. So it's not necessarily true that the financial sector's aggregate balance sheet must keep expanding in order to provide the liquidity needed to the non by the non-financial sector. Higher velocity of existing financial sector balance sheets delivered by technology in lieu of leverage could be a new tool in the monetary policy toolkit too. As I'll discuss in a moment, bringing stable coins into the banking system, monetary policies would have an opportunity to deploy existing central bank reserves that are currently dormant thereby relieving some of the pressure on using QE. Commercial bank issued versions of these tokens backed by reserves on deposit at central banks would complement, not compete with existing real-time gross settlement efforts of central banks such as FedNow. In September, the Financial Times published a piece co-authored by IMF economist, Dr. Manwan Singh and me on this very topic, summarizing a chapter on which we collaborated in the most recent edition of his book, Collateral and Financial Plumbing. I've been citing his work regarding the velocity of collateral reuse for years, going back to my Morgan Stanley days when I helped corporate clients understand liquidity risk in financial markets. The size and leverage of dealer balance sheets has always been a key driver of liquidity, especially in the repo and related securities financing markets. Indeed, I found it notable when a GSIB in August appointed the former head of its repo desk to be the new head of its digital asset group based in London. Keep an eye on this space. Number four, stable coins will grow big enough to start gumming up monetary policy within five or so years, assuming they're not brought inside the banking system before then. Stable coins are actually collateral silos 
They wall off T-bills and other high quality liquid assets, making these scarce HQLA unavailable for use in pledged collateral markets. This is not an issue yet because stable coins aren't big enough yet. Remember only 22.1 billion outstanding. But it is of course one of the big issues raised by policymakers when Facebook Libra was announced last year. ECB staff issued a bulletin about this in May, 2020, noting that Facebook Libra could become a $3 trillion collateral silo. The delayed launch of Facebook Libra bought time, but didn't solve the monetary policy pressure posed by the siloing of collateral by stablecoin issuers generally, because the market outside of Facebook, Facebook Libra is proliferating. As we move to the next prediction, it's worth noting that only some of the total collateral that backs stablecoins is invested in HQLA, as some of it is also invested in bank deposits. So here's prediction five. Owing to payment system risk, the cash collateral managers of stablecoin collateral will be mostly non-lending banks. There is significant liquidity risk in managing stablecoin cash collateral. Stablecoin deposits are volatile money deposits, and there are scenarios in which they could be withdrawn en masse within the span of minutes. So they might even be the hottest of hot money deposits. This liquidity risk can easily lead to payment system risk in the event of sudden unexpected large withdrawals of stablecoin deposits at banks, especially for a bank that happens to be in an overdraft position and that has exhausted both its short-term and long-term liquidity sources. This is why it's critical that banks managing stablecoin deposits not invest the assets backing them in anything other than cash or T-bills, the shortest of short-term treasuries. The Federal Reserve has, in my opinion, been prudent in its management of the payment system risk posed by stablecoin deposits at commercial banks already, and in multiple ways. Markets almost got a small test of this very risk last week, when an unusual event called an accidental fork happened on the Ethereum network, which is the blockchain used by several existing US dollar stablecoins. For a few hours, there was a chance that stablecoins on one fork would have to be quote unquote burned which means canceled and redeemed for cash suddenly, thereby raising the risk of a large and sudden withdrawal of US dollar stablecoin deposits at the banks holding the stablecoin collateral. For a non-lending bank that invests the assets backing these deposits entirely in cash and or T-bills has also planned for that possibility and knows how to manage through it, this wouldn't be a big problem. As the volume and velocity of stable coins grow, the liquidity risk will of course grow too. For this reason, it will become increasingly important for the banks managing stablecoin cash to be non-lending banks or perhaps liquid asset banks that ring fence the deposits, the investments in segregated bankruptcy remote accounts. Again, to invest the assets backing the stablecoin deposit liabilities in 100% risk-free short-term and liquid assets. Indeed, one reason why Wyoming chose its special purpose depository institution charter to be a non-lending charter is precisely because leverage and digital assets do not mix. Let me pause and repeat that. Leverage and digital assets do not mix. Digital assets generally settle in minutes and with settlement finality, which means leveraged financial institutions that handle them could quickly find themselves in trouble if they don't manage the liquidity risk right. Digital assets move fast. 
So there's, fun, there's a fundamental reason why digital assets should interface with the traditional financial system via non-leveraged banks whose demand deposit liabilities are 100% backed by risk-free, short-term, and liquid assets. Prediction six. Consequently, the central, bank, central banks will allow non-lending banks to issue stablecoin-like instruments. For context, it's important to note that the vast majority of payment system or money transfer innovations historically have been driven by the, public, uh, the private sector, including credit cards, ATMs, the SWIFT electronic transfer system, automated clearinghouses, and person-to-person -person payment processes. Similarly, private sector banks will likely lead by issuing stablecoin-like instruments. But when banks issue these instruments, they will be something very different than stablecoins, though. So let's call them tradable bank deposits. Again, these exist in Switzerland in a very small size, not yet in the United States. Bringing them inside the banking system would help address the valid concerns voiced by Federal Reserve Governor Lyle Brainerd about the legal regulatory financial system stability and private money implications of stablecoins issued by non-banks. By greenlighting tradable bank deposits, policymakers will have a direct macroprudential view and supervisory role over all the activity instead of the indirect view into non-bank stablecoin issuers that they have today. It's a logical next step that creates opportunities as well, including the ability to distribute program funds such as PPP to customers quickly. Of course, non-lending banks can't lend, but they can distribute payments to customer wallets near instantly. And for PPP, they could have partnered with lending banks that do lend, for example. So for both offensive and defensive reasons, I predict central banks will authorize non-lending banks to issue tradable bank deposits on a blockchain, 100% backed by risk-free, short-term and liquid assets, including cash on deposit at central banks directly, just as FINMA has already authorized in Switzerland. Prediction seven, this prediction is a caution. There will be problems if the key legal and regulatory infrastructure is not yet ready for this, which it is not yet in most of the world. In the US specifically, it is critical to clarify two things. First, the commercial law treatment of digital assets under the Uniform Commercial Code, which is state law in the US and has to be implemented by all 50 states separately. And second, the bankruptcy regime for intermediaries handling digital assets. One of the current challenges is that all but one US state, the state of Wyoming, has not clarified either of these yet. As a result, there is no clear roadmap for how digital, digital assets would be divvied up in the event of the bankruptcy of a digital asset custodian outside of Wyoming, such as an uninsured state trust company or a state licensed money transmitter. A bankruptcy, record, a bankruptcy court would have to rely on imperfect analogies and old common law concepts. Although the UCC does provide some clarity regarding the treatment of digital assets if they are held with a bank or broker dealer, and if the parties agree to treat them as quote unquote financial assets under Article 8, only 20 to 25% of digital assets are actually held this way and get the benefit of that legal clarity. The remainder, the remaining 75 to 80%, the vast majority of digital assets are owned directly by individuals or held in a different manner. So the UCC characteristic of this vast majority is far from clear. Consequently, until all this is clarified, the bankruptcy of a US intermediary handling digital assets other than a bank, broker dealer, 
or futures commission merchant would be a mess. Thankfully, there is one state in the US that has plugged every one of these holes. Again, the state of Wyoming. It has already spent nearly three years clarifying all this and preparing to regulate banks that handle digital assets. As with any financial services regulations, first come the laws, then come the rules, then comes the supervisory exam manual. And Wyoming, only Wyoming, has completed all three of these steps. Specifically, spanning three different legislative sessions, the Wyoming legislature has enacted 20 different blockchain laws signed into law by two different governors. Among these is Wyoming's Special Purpose Depository Institution Charter, a bank charter specifically tailored to enable a bank to provide custody of digital assets and the US dollar services around them. You've already heard the fundamental reasons why the SPDI is structured as a non-lending bank, but there's more. SPDIs offer special consumer protections for digital assets. Customers are protected by a statutory receivership process and the SPDIs must submit resolution plans, so-called living wills, just like SIFIs must do. So that's it for the laws. Let's next talk about the rules. In early 2019, the Wyoming Division of Banking ran a process to gain input from digital asset industry experts, including technologists, attorneys, compliance experts, and a consumer advocate. And Wyoming's digital asset rules became effective that summer. This process also had a key benefit of providing important training in digital assets for the bank examiners who will be supervising Wyoming's SPDI banks. The third and final step is the supervisory exam manual. The Wyoming Division of Banking hired Promontory Financial Group out of Washington, DC, as well as outside digital asset compliance consultants to help it prepare a 750 page supervisory exam manual for SPDIs and digital assets. And there's more, here's the proverbial cherry on top. The Wyoming Division of Banking is conducting training in early 2021 for bank regulators across the US regarding how to supervise companies involved in digital assets. Led by Commissioner Albert Forkner, who is the second longest serving state bank commissioner in the United States and past president of CSBS, Wyoming has also worked extensively with federal regulators in all relevant agencies and has already established information sharing or joint supervisory agreements with other regulators outside the US that also supervise institutions servicing digital assets. In other words, Wyoming has dotted its I's and crossed its T's. No other jurisdiction or regulator in the US has all the laws, rules, examination manual and examiner training for digital assets in place yet. Other states will certainly catch up to Wyoming eventually. And indeed, many states are in various stages of adopting Wyoming's laws and copying its SPDI bank charter. State commercial laws generally are being updated for digital assets through a uniform law commission process, which should be finished by approximately 2022. And after that's finished, then the remaining 49 states would go adopt the laws through their legislative process. That could take several years. All this is good and will probably happen over time. But what we don't know is whether it will happen in time. Digital asset use is spiking now as more mainstream users are entering the market. The compliance arm of the mainstream financial sector is already prepared to handle this as digital asset companies have been registered with FinCEN for several years already in the US 
and law enforcement has been successfully working with existing stablecoin issuers for years too. But the legal and regulatory arms of the mainstream sector, except in pockets like Wyoming, still have a lot of work to do. Prediction number eight, the rise of so-called modern core banking software systems will be a critical component to the smooth functioning of tradable bank deposits within the traditional financial systems plumbing, including connectivity to FedNow when that comes online. Speaking from the perspective of a de novo bank that intends to become an active user of FedNow, I am excited about the role of tradable bank deposits integrated with FedNow. Prediction 10, tradable bank deposits backed 100% by risk-free liquid short-term assets will become a new pristine form of collateral available to help alleviate collateral scarcity in the repo and other pledged collateral markets. In other words, by bringing stable coins inside the banking system, they could become a valuable new monetary policy tool instead of keeping them outside where they are building collateral silos that could grow big enough to gum up monetary policy by altering the collateral reuse channel of monetary transmission. The value of tradable bank deposits to collateral markets is not necessarily because they can be pledged, although they might be able to be, but because they don't necessarily need to be pledged since they settle fast and with finality, which means they can be reused and reused and reused and reused and reused every day. They're also programmable and auditable, which means the length of collateral chains involving them can be measured by risk managers and prudential regulators alike. And finally, prediction 10, programmable forms of the US dollar will extend the dollar's reserve currency status. Here I must credit Nick Carter, a partner at Castle Island Ventures. Nick explained this in a February 2020 post called, Policymakers Shouldn't Fear Digital Money. So far, it's maintaining the dollar's status. He wrote, far from com compromising the dollar's mighty advantage internationally, cryptocurrency and the infrastructure built around it, built to support it, will most likely entrench its position. Why? Because stablecoins accelerate dollarization by, quote, near frictionlessly distributing dollars across the world. A somewhat similar argument was made by monetary historian, Dr. Niall Ferguson, originally a big critic of digital assets who changed his mind last year, along with author Michael Casey, who you'll hear about this afternoon uh, on the Unchained podcast in July. They debated the financial technology race among nations, especially between the US and China and generally concluded it will turn on whether the US allows the emergence of a programmable dollar to fix its antiquated payment systems, which Dr. Ferguson called largely a relic of the 1970s. Well, I just looked it up and guess what? US dollar stable coins outstanding have doubled since they reported that, recorded that, that podcast back in July. And the average velocity of each stable coin has also doubled since then too. Thankfully, programmable dollars are already emerging. The real question is whether monetary policymakers will leave them outside the banking system or bring them inside. Before closing, I'd like to refer back to one of the most formative speeches for me regarding digital assets and the mainstream financial system, which happened here at a Cato conference on digital assets back in April, 2016. Then CFTC commissioner, Chris Giancarlo spoke about the quote, practical impossibility of a single national regulator collecting sufficient quality data to recreate a real-time ledger of the, high of the highly complex 
global swaps trading portfolios of all the market participants. In the Q&A afterwards, he continued, quote, at the heart of the financial crisis, perhaps the most critical element was the lack of visibility into the counterparty credit exposure of one major financial institution to another. Probably the most glaring omission that needed to be addressed was that lack of visibility. And here we are in 2016 and we, don't, we still don't have it. Continuing, he said, the benefit of blockchain technology is to provide a comprehensive view so that regulators can then make recommendations to Congress and other policymakers about what to do about the interlocking relationships. But, but before we can even get to the policy concerns, we first need to have that comprehensive, consistent view, which we don't have today. He concluded by saying, quote, if allowed to thrive, blockchain may finally give regulators transparency. I agree 100% with what Commissioner John Carlos said in that Cato speech four and a half years ago. And it's no accident that he and I are both working independently on forms of digital dollars, albeit from very different angles. Digital dollars are coming to the banking system as well they should. I believe the practice of delayed net settlement in US dollar payments is one major reason why securities also still settle on a delayed net settlement basis, currently trade date plus two days. This practice used to make sense due to technology constraints but it's been years since those constraints were binding anymore. I believe that making payments programmable will ultimately drive other asset classes to become programmable too, including and especially securities and derivatives. Many of you have heard me speak previously about inherent inaccuracies in Wall Street's ledger systems, such as the 2017 Dole Food litigation example where customers submitted their brokerage statements to a Delaware court to prove their ownership of Dole shares. And the sum of all those shares reported on their brokerage statements actually exceeded the quantity of real Dole shares outstanding by a whopping one third. Another example is my personal experience of a top custody bank that held a pension client's securities in a non-lending segregated custody account. But when the pension fund instructed the custody bank to deliver the securities, the custody bank had to admit it didn't actually have them all. Even though, again, the pension funds brokerage statement showed they were there, they weren't. Innocent people have had their pockets picked in these situations and that's just wrong. But these situations are tolerated because the ledger systems inherently need fault tolerance. It's simply never possible in a delayed net settlement system for all the various ledgers to be in perfect sync with each other. This is one reason why Commissioner John Carlo was right when he said in that 2016 speech here at Cato that prudential regulators don't have sufficient visibility into the counterparty credit exposure of major financial institutions to each other. And that if allowed to thrive, blockchain may finally give regulators that much needed transparency. Well, not much has happened since 2016 to give regulators that transparency in securities and derivatives realms. But oh boy, a lot has happened in the US dollar payments realm since then. And these advances give me good reason to be optimistic that when digital dollars are widely adopted in financial markets, which they inevitably will be, they will finally give regulators the transparency they need to ensure financial system stability. And with that, Diego, I would gladly take your questions. 
Caitlin, thank you so much for that fascinating presentation and for the mention of a previous Cato Monetary Conference. It's good to know that you know some lessons <laughs> persist and even they have real world impacts. That's always very encouraging. Oh, yes. But I have to say your speech had what newspaper editors call a very high content to words ratio, which is always very good. <laughs> now, I have a question before I get to the audience's questions. Mm -hmm. I have a question of my own, which is you emphasized in several places the the fact that leverage and stable coins don't mix well because of the high velocity of stable coins and the fact that they settle so quickly. Now, how would you respond to a central banker who then said, well, given those that potential for very quick runs and the fact that you are probably raising the cost of capital for the special purpose banks that are issuing stable coins, why shouldn't central banks be involved in this directly and issue quote unquote, digital dollars themselves, whether in token or account-based form, rather than private institutions. And then you have the intermediaries do other things. How would you respond to that? Well, they might be. Uh, and in fact, actually, having commercial banks issue them where the commercial bank is the obligor and the commercial bank, for example, is just storing the cash 100% on deposit at the central bank. Effectively, the commercial bank is just passing through the central bank liquidity to its customers literally the same technology could be used by simply changing the obligor on, on the instrument. It is entirely possible that this becomes an intermediate step to a central bank actually issuing these. For the most part, it is true though that central banks are not set up because of the multi-layered delayed net settlement system and payments, they're not set up to face consumers directly. There are a few central, central banks in the world that do, uh, for certain parts of their business. But generally speaking, most of the, especially developed world central banks work on a, on a layered system where the commercial banks may have correspondence and the correspondence settle with the money, mark, uh, money center banks and the money center banks are primary dealers with the central bank. So you've got these layers. And historically, this is one of the reasons why it took so long to settle payments because every single one of those layers has to settle in sequence. They can't settle at the same time because they're not using shared infrastructure. That's what a blockchain is, it's shared infrastructure. So not only can we cut out all those layers with this new technology, but we can speed up settlement because you don't have so many layers who have to go through the, the process. But because of that, if you think about it, what the commercial banks in this new world are likely to be is the consumer facing entities consumer and institution business facing entities where the central banks distribute the, the currency to the, uh, to the banks who then distribute it out to the customers in, a, in what remains a two-tiered system. Unless the central banks decide to set up all the customer onboarding, customer service, compliance, and all of that infrastructure related to servicing customers. Um, some central banks in the world will do that and others will choose to keep the so-called two-tiered banking system. Very good, thank you. Um, on Twitter, Nikhil asks, do you think there's potential for, for algorithmic that is non-collateralized but more decentralized stable coins to gain significant market share? And we've had a few attempts, at least a few white papers published uh, for algorithmic stable coins. We'd love to have your thoughts on that. Yes, they are succeeding. They are absolutely succeeding. And uh, what is fascinating about them is that they are independent of the existing banking system. At the end of the day, if they are collateralized by fiat currency, somewhere there has to be connectivity into the banking system. But all the experimentation that is happening 
in 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 uh, in in the sort of so-called decentralized finance DeFi world doesn't have direct connectivity to the traditional financial system. So I, I'm 100% in support of the experimentation in in those in those markets. Uh, one of the challenges, of course, is that those those a lot there's a lot of um, move fast and break break things um, ethos in 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 that market. Uh, and so it is definitely new and young. One of the reasons why I'm a big Bitcoin fan is that is a very tested system, and it is a very it, it's been through its hoops. Uh, it's 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 proven itself. No one's been able to hack the Bitcoin blockchain, even though it's been out there for 12 years. The, all the hacks that have happened that you've read about in the newspaper have been misleading in that they were not a hack of Bitcoin. They were a hack of applications built on top of Bitcoin that were insecure. Bitcoin itself has never been hacked. With some of these new protocols, they don't begin to have 12 years worth of history under, uh, underneath them. And so one of the challenges of connecting them into the traditional financial system is exactly that. You definitely want some of these experiments to be out there for several years and make sure that they've actually survived the trial by fire before you start integrating them with the system. And indeed, the Ethereum accidental fork that I mentioned last week, I was actually pretty nervous there for a few, few hours as it was happening about what that might mean uh, if there were sudden withdrawals of cash from banks that, that regulators and risk managers were not anticipating. That was a big risk. But the market proved itself. It, it, it recovered very quickly. These sorts of things are the, are the things that harden these, these, these projects. And I'm a huge fan of permissionless open blockchains precisely for that reason. They have been battle tested. The, the engineers have had a huge bug bounty for figuring out how to hack them and they haven't succeeded yet. Uh, and so I, I would I would hold up the security of these systems against the security of traditional database architectures as actually more secure. So you do agree with what, for example, Commissioner Hester Peirce at the SEC has said that the key to bringing more light and more supervision of a market sort, um, market discipline, I should say, into these permissionless blockchains is by enabling secondary markets to emerge and by enabling financial institutions to become involved in issue instruments on the basis of you know compatible tokens things like that yes i do 100 percent uh she's echoing the same view that commissioner john carlo expressed at the cato institute and it is the right view it's a logical view if you if you dig into these issues it's pretty clear that the regulators can't piece together at a macro level the true amount of leverage in the financial industry. And as we start moving some of these things over to architectures that, that are shared infrastructure, where the regulators can look into entire markets using that shared infrastructure, it becomes a really critical tool. Now, I will say, one of the questions we frequently get is, well, the, the private financial institutions are not comfortable with open permis permissionless blockchain backends. I think the actual experience in the market is proving that the open permissionless blockchain backends are actually better. Um, this is why you're getting all this innovation on top of them. You can build applications on top, on top of them and that open systems are actually where the value comes from as opposed to the closed um, permissioned blockchains. And some folks have asked us at Avanti, would you issue a, a, one of your tokens on a private permissioned blockchain? And I will share that one of the hurdles of doing so 
is that we have to be certain that our clients' transactions are not going to be censored. And in private permission blockchains, you don't know that some party isn't going to censor a transaction. They have to be truly decentralized in order to work. And so I would, within the, within the banking system. And so I would make a strong case that the only way for, for a, a tokenized dollar to be issued is on a system where it is 100% decentralized, ironclad, crystal clear that a transaction cannot be censored and that that isn't an attack vector on the system itself. I have a question, if you don't mind, about how flexible you have found the state regulatory environment in terms of um, enabling some of these changes to regulation that you mentioned. I know that you've, in Wyoming, you've pioneered a lot of changes in the direction that you want to see things moving into. But for a long time before the rise of stablecoins and even before the launch of crypto, the transfer had been from state charters typically to national bank charters because they were seen as more flexible with fewer restrictions with the potential to operate in interstate without any kind of hurdle and i'm curious to know how have you found how um open to innovation in the context of there being a wider federal regulatory system have you found the state level to be well i think the state innovation has actually pushed innovation at the federal level the states are nicknamed the laboratories of democracy. And indeed, I think it's, a, it, it's, it's an apt term where innovation can take place. You have much more agile uh, responsiveness. And that's what we found here in Wyoming. It's worth me sharing the story. How did I get involved? I, I grew up here, spent 30 years on the East Coast between graduate school and uh, working on Wall Street and came back uh, to help Wyoming fix a problem with its law, which is that I tried to donate appreciated Bitcoin to the University of Wyoming to fund an endowment for female engineers in 2017. And because Wyoming was one of three states that had a money transmission law that was worded in a particular way, none of the service providers in digital assets such as Coinbase, et cetera, could do business in Wyoming. And so the University of Wyoming couldn't accept my my Bitcoin donation. So I said, I'd been on the board there for, for two terms previously, knew them well and said, let's get, let, I'll roll up sleeves, I'll come out and explain all this to the legislators. And I just parked in, in Cheyenne at a hotel room for six weeks um, and, and worked with everybody and, and, and got folks to understand this wasn't as scary as it sounded. There's really powerful technology here. There are ways with, for law enforcement to handle fraud. And, uh, and in fact, actually, uh, as uh, to quote uh, Katie Hahn, a partner at Andrew Sikorowitz, who's a former US attorney, uh, she says any, any fraud created by a keyboard, um, she much preferred to fraud uh, perpetrated in actual US dollars paper bills because it's traceable if it's done by a keyboard. So uh, long story short, um, that's how the ball got rolling. And then multiple legislators um, pushed me for additional ideas. And uh, the, the Special Purpose Depository Institution Charter was born in the summer of 2018 out of necessity. So, uh, and it was because we were interfacing between the state of Wyoming, which is interested in innovation and the uh, industry that was coming to us with real problems that needed to be solved and they weren't getting an ear elsewhere. And so to answer your question, yes, the states um, definitely have proven to be more innovative and more willing to act quickly, which is, which is the role that they play. Um, I would just close by saying Wyoming's done this twice before, once in the business world, and then once, uh, once in a different realm. Wyoming is the first state that 
that um, recognized limited liability companies as an alternative corporate form to corporations. That was done in 1977, and eventually all 50 states adopted it. Uh, and then also Wyoming was the first state to give women the right to vote. It took 50 years before the rest of the United States gave women the right to vote. So we have a history of doing, being out front, not being afraid to lead. Uh, there's clearly been tremendous resistance <laughs> to some of those ideas, uh, but uh, Wyoming tends to, to prevail in the, in the end because these ideas are strong and solid ideas. And I hope you see that this idea of bringing tradable bank deposits into the banking system is a solid and sound idea as well as long as it's done properly without leverage. Well, not that many people, Caitlin, get to be able to say that they couldn't do something to their alma mater. And so they decided to go to the legislature to have things change so that they could actually uh, do what they wanted to do, which was, of course, a very good thing to do in terms of your, uh, your charitable donation, but also has transformed, I think, the regulatory environment, not just in Wyoming, but also the expectations across the US. So thank you very much for that absolutely fascinating presentation. Congratulations on all the work you're doing. And thank you thank all you. for watching and for all of your questions. And we're now moving straight into the next panel, which is on digital currencies, competition, and monetary policy. Thank you.